This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Arby's, Franklin Arby's in the news, making a big sandwich announcement. Their new spicy Diablo chicken uh, limited time offers coming out. Franklin, it's so hot that they offer a free milkshake with it just to bring the temperature down. What do you think? A couple things I would note. Joe Kefoffer's love for Arby's is disturbing. I mean, such a stalwart defender and fan. And not only on top of that, but a strange adherent to randomly getting ice cream and shakes at like 10 a.m. in the morning. Like, you know, most people get an ice cream or a shake, like, you know, I don't know, once every maybe two or three weeks at, at, at dinner time. Joe Kefoffer a couple times a week will just rip one in the middle of the day just, just for the fun of it. So, well, you got to remember this it's context, you know. You're, you're 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm an insomniac. So you're 10 o'clock in the morning is really kind of my two in the afternoon since I don't sleep, right? This menu item is specifically designed with Joe Keefe offer in mind, except for like the ghost pepper. I don't know if that's going to work on your system or not, but the rest of it, the rest of it is specifically designed for you. We know that old people have, have trouble with spicy food. So, but the rest of it is, is just right up your alley. I mean, I mean it's like, pepper. it's like craft in the Joe Keefe offer menu item. It's phenomenal. Ghost pepper jack cheese, fiery hot seasoning, fire roasted jalapenos, and Diablo barbecue sauce. And wait for it, wait for it, served on a red chipotle bun. I mean, my bald dome will just be sweating profusely. I would be sweating through this sandwich, but topping it off with a lovely vanilla shake to cool my mouth down between bites. Phenomenal. I can't wait. I know that, um, you know, I have the cordon off. Get, you know, find an Arby's next to the local clear nearest the hospital uh, when I go do that. But I can't wait. I, you know, everybody's got their little secret, their little secret fix, their little secret, you know, fast food place that theirs. They, you know, maybe Taco Bell for some people or Carson. It's all the above. Obviously, it's entire industry. But everybody's got their thing. But mine's Arby's. My, it's my secret little, my secret little stash. I love me. I love me some Arby's. And on that deliciously happy, happy note, let's start the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go superside. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch coming up on the podcast. It was a big week for two big reasons. The list of Starbucks locations seeking union representation nearly doubled this week. And the Supreme Court essentially put the death now on the president's vaccine mandate for large employers. We are joined by Peter Romeo, editor-at-large for Restaurant Business Magazine, to get his unique insights on the week that was and how employers are reacting to the issue challenges before them. And then we'll wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line public strategies partner, Franklin Cole. And Franklin, uh, we have a longtime friend, ally, journalist, pal, Peter Romeo, joining us uh, to talk about a very big week in restaurant land, not only the growing list of Starbucks units in play with regard to unionization, but the monumental decision by the United States Supreme Court this week. And um, Pete has unique insights that uh, many other journalists don't have. He has experience, he digs, got great connections in the industry. So let's get to that interview. 
Well, as our listeners will well know, we have been covering uh, the Starbucks unionization campaigns that they have begun to spread throughout all corners of the country. And it's been interesting as Franklin and I have, you know, dealt with, you know, large numbers of companies, brands, corporate leaders, the kind of disparity in a sense of urgency across the board. Some companies are very animated about this. Some companies are kind of I'll just I'll be charitable and say less animated. And we've just come watching this. Peter Romeo with Restaurant Business Magazine has been covering this issue better than anybody. Pete's been covering public policy and politics in the restaurant industry longer than anybody and better than anybody. And he has graced us, Franklin, with his presence this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Peter Romeo. Pete, good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for that intro. But don't think you're going to give me the tab for this working lunch. Uh, you know, I, I thought uh, I misread the title. I thought it said free lunch, not working lunch. But Typical reporters in their alligator arms when the check comes. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Uh, very good to be here with you and to talk about this this topic, because th- this is a this is a big one, needless to say. So, so Pete, let's get into it now. You know, uh, Franklin, let me kind of pivot to you to kind of level set how many ballpark, not that exact figure because it's changing every day, but ballpark, how many Starbucks units are kind of, quote unquote, in play that are in the process, either have been, you know, conducted an election or in the, they've been granted the authority to proceed with an election or have filed the paperwork for the NLRB to do election. How many units now are we talking about? Yeah, as I'm, I'm going to give you a guesstimate. I'm going to say it's around 17-ish in around eight or nine states-ish. So somewhere, and I don't know which ones have of that have filed paperwork versus have announced or getting ready to file paperwork, but it, it's somewhere in that number. It's a lot, and it's spread out geographically from Tallahassee, Florida to Eugene, Oregon, right? So like, it's a diverse set of stores that clearly there's some organic organizing going on here and you see it actually playing out over kind of social media so that's where we are joe as as, as former corporate hacks it's it's i you know every headline i see i jump right to what is going on inside hq what's the conversation either formally around the the, the table or at the water cooler, what's the tone and temperature of the executives? I've just been through that for so many years. My mind just goes directly to that spot. Pete, I know you, in your reporting, just generally, you have you know great relationships throughout the industry for a long time. You know a lot of execs. What is your sense of you know the alert level of corporate execs throughout the industry on this particular issue? I would say on a scale of one to 10, with 10 being the highest, 10 being a four alarm fire, I'd say the industry is between one and two. And uh, I, I think there are a lot of re- <clears throat> reasons for that. First of all, my, my number agrees with yours, uh, Franklin. I think we had 17, but there could be an 18th, depending on how you count Chicago. But when I talk with operators about this and I say, hey, what do you think of this? They kind of slough it off as Starbucks problem. And when I, I sort of probe a little what I get is that they're still thinking that this is an old style unionization effort, that people are marching outside with signs um, and that they are trying to, to get a vote to bring in an old line union like we saw in some landmark independence in the 60s and even in the 70s. And when they realize what's going on and realize how quickly the, this is spreading, there is a little flicker of recognition but the number of, of companies that have really 
reacted, in my estimation, uh, suitably, really just a handful. And they tend to be the big companies. They tend to be the more progressive companies, like in, like the Inspires of the world, certainly McDonald's, uh, folks like that. What's really interesting is if you get down below the corporate level, the franchisor level to the franchisees, there's not even any awareness of this. And, and that is what's really frightening because they're not pressuring the, the home office in terms of what do we do if my employees should send me a letter saying we look to organize. So, so the, the awareness is not very high whatsoever, unfortunately. Well, if the awareness is not high, then either is the preparation level. And, you know, Franklin, I know you have been diligent in trying to get, you know, at least the brands that we work with, you know, educated on this, ready to go, providing tools and resources and avenues for them to kind of, you know, inoculate themselves as best as possible. Are you seeing the same thing as Pete? I, th- I think yes. And I, I I don't think this is limited necessarily to... uh to this issue set, right? Like we, we see this where the big brands are ahead on, you know, packaging EPR or they're ahead on, right? Like there's, there's a handful of, you know, let's call it 15 brands, right? That, that are super sophisticated. And then there's a lot of fall off and look, a lot of operators, particularly at the franchisee level, man, we're still in a pandemic. We still have like all kinds of crazy. They're just trying to like keep ahead of tomorrow and keep the lights on. And so it's, it's hard to put, I know I'm speaking for the crowd here that we would all agree that it's hard to put too many expectations on particularly some of the smaller franchisee operators, right? That said, in some of the press coverage this week, you know, it was rehashing some of those Pew numbers within the younger demographic, like that 20-year-old group, 77% are favorable towards labor unions. <laughs> you know, like those are the people working in your restaurants, right? So like, when when eight out of ten of your workers are already favorable to unions, like you got it, you have an issue right off the bat. Like the we talk about the atmospherics all the time. The atmospherics are different today than they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. And we have all these other issues with COVID, these legitimate health and safety concerns. There's just all this stuff going on. That if you're not in your A game in this space, then you're gonna get what you're gonna get. Like a, you know, the old saying, you get the union you deserve. Like, I mean, it, if you are not thinking about this through this stuff proactively and thinking through your labor relations program, then you're really opening yourself up to a lot of exposure in this environment. Yeah. You know what I'd, I'd add on to that is if you're an operator and you haven't gone on social media to see what people are talking about, uh, what employees are talking about in terms of unionization, you are missing a real eye opener because if you go on there, you'll see that that is a channel that is being readily used to spread the word. Uh, and yet a lot of folks don't even realize that that it's there. There is this channel. There is this pipeline. So anyone who doubts that should go online, go to Starbucks uh, United or Workers United and take a look. And I think it'll be a real surprise. Yeah, I'm always I'm always kind of amazed. And, you know, Franklin reminds me on a daily basis that I've been around the industry too long. And, you know, but I, I am always amazed at the ability of brands to to label an issue or issue set as someone else's problem, right? You know, for, for years, the quick service guys, namely uh, our friends in Oprah, thought the minimum wage and the fight for 15 was a Walmart problem. And they just did not prepare themselves. And now McDonald's has, you know, what I would consider adult supervision. They have smart people in those seats now and they do get threat. And then you have another company that says, well, that's McDonald's problem. 
or that's, you know, this is Starbucks. It's all of our problems. If you have this business model and you have this customer facing uh, brand, then it's your problem. And I, I've always, I've always, I've always been, in, I've always marveled at the ability of one brand to say, yeah, it's really not my problem. It's my other, it's my competitor's problem. It seems so short-sighted. Franklin, in terms of the timing, we could, you know, in terms of how these elections are, are scheduled in this store, I know there are like three that will continuing in January, another couple in Buffalo, the, the second set of three of the original, and I believe the Mesa, Arizona election will be completed in January. By, by February 1, we could have six or seven Starbucks units organized. I think so. And I think I think the union's probably going to have a higher loss rate than is average for the SEIU. You know, SEIU has high win rates. I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's in like the 70s, right? Because now we're in this like keep the momentum going, file election petitions everywhere, like let's keep it going. I think they're probably going to be a little looser and more casual in terms of filing election petitions. That is to say, I think their win rate is going to drop. So I wouldn't be surprised if we're in like a 50-50 or 60-40 to the company scenario here. But to your point, Joe, yeah, I mean, you're looking at the numbers. We're getting close to 20 election petitions filed. I wouldn't be surprised in the next month or two if we have, you know, 10 unionized locations within the entire system and geographically spread out in different big, massive media markets. D.C. is now on the board with an election petition filed. We got Chicago. We've got the Northwest covered in Eugene and I think Seattle. The, yeah, the mm-hmm. home office, right? right? That's going to get a lot of that's going to drive a lot of press in the Seattle market that's going to it's going to bump into the national coverage. You start looking around the map, you got Metro Phoenix, right? Like you start looking around the map, you've got a lot of super large media markets now where you have union elections and probably will have, you know, union outposts. You can drive a lot of national press coverage out of those big regional uh, media markets and and I'm certain the the uh, you, you know the strategist at the SEIU are thinking through that lens. So so Peter, you know, and I know that that, that you know you're, you've put out a lot of content uh, in restaurant business on this. Are people absorbing the information in this space that you're putting out uh, at, a, at, a, at a meaningful level? Well, initially, when this whole thing first really came into uh, into view um, with the situation in Buffalo, there was a lot of interest, but I don't think it was a matter of uh, holy spit, this could happen to us. I think it was more a matter of, huh, isn't that something? Look at that, a union. After all these years, uh, unions getting active. Since then, in terms of the spread, I've been astonished at how little urgency readers seem to bring to those stories in terms of scouting out what's going on in their market. We did uh, this week several stories on Starbucks, different aspects uh, one was on the spread of the unions, uh, the vote being uh, scheduled in, in Mesa for, for today, actually, the ballots go out. And at the same time, we ran a story on Starbucks diversity efforts, which are you know interesting, but unique to a, a brand of that size. And there was more interest in the diversity stuff than in the union stuff, which really, really floored me. And I mean, it was a considerable disparity. So I, I, again, I think people are figuring, geez, I, I got to make payroll this this pay, this pay period, uh, I can't worry about uh, my employees looking to union or what's happening over at Starbucks. So no, I don't think that there is enough 
attention being focused on it. At the same time, you don't hear a lot of talk from our leadership, from the industry's leadership, from associations and groups like that saying, hey, you know, we better get on the stick. This is this is still at the stage where we can try to manage this. But you, you don't get a lot of that. You get a lot of, well, let's wait and see. So uh, it, it, it's very disturbing because the industry is sleeping, um, whether that's justified by the bigger crisis they have on other fronts, so be it. But still, it, it's a real threat. Franklin, uh, last kind of set of questions. I'll start with you and Pete, if you want to chime in. But I'm struck by, you know, we talk about the franchisees, franchise operations and Starbucks franchisees or, you know, Wendy, whatever it is, you know. And there's only a certain amount that franchise or parent, Franklin, can do to help this the franchisee in this space. You know, if they get too involved in this, you know, aren't, aren't they running up against joint employer challenges? You know, I mean, like, where, like, where's that gray area? How, how aggressive can the franchise or parent be in helping individual franchisees in this kind of labor relations space? Where, where are the, where are the, where are the electric fences on the, in terms of joint employer? So, I mean, there's, there's a different kind of risk tolerance within every brand, I think in this, but as a general rule, I think it's much better to have the franchisees work through their trade groups um, on this and not with the franchisor. So that should be for all brands, right? The, all brands should be reaching out to whether it's National Restaurant Association or International Franchise Association or whoever and working through those groups and accessing resources so they can get smarter in this space. Everyone should be doing that right now. And I think those are the appropriate vehicles uh, to learn best practices and Quite frankly, those organizations need to get input from operators as well to what is going on in the ground. So I would encourage all operators to kind of make sure they're plugged in with their trade groups. That's where you need to go to, to get kind of counsel and, and best practice. And I would I would limit, yet again, it's going to be different within every system, but I, I would limit or just, I would just not do it. Generally speaking, that's a good rule, but you know, everyone has a little different approach. All right. So let's let's uh, put, let's put the, the Starbucks issue to bed. And, and since we have Pete Romeo with us live, Pete, little little something happened. The funny thing happened on the way to the forum yesterday. The uh, the Supremes spoke up and ruled on the uh, whether or not to lift the stay on the president's vaccine mandate. You've doing a lot of writing on this in the last 48 hours. What's your take? I, I think that the Biden employee vaccine mandate is is dead. Uh, you know, technically, the sixth, the appeals court of the Sixth Circuit could, could uh, rule differently based on an, an alternative argument put forward by the defense team in, in that uh, situation. But it's gone. What was really astonishing to me was the the decision from the Supreme Court. It, it was really. The objection was not really so much ideological as it was to just the breadth of this. The thing that kept coming up in the decisions, the, the, the two decisions to halt the, the rollout of uh, the mandate, was that, my God, it's going to involve 84 million people, and that's never been done before. And we're not sure if, if really this was within the mandate because it's just so broad and it's never been done before. So it, it seems like there is some gray area there. The, the court did leave open the possibility of uh, the administration coming back with more targeted mandates for certain industries, you know, 
whether it's food processing or conceivably restaurants, but I don't see that happening. I just can't see that being uh, the situation. So I, I think for now, uh, on the federal level, the matter is kind of dead. On the state level, that could be a different thing. Illinois very quietly last Friday announced that it was going to adopt the federal standard as a state requirement. And that's a that's a whole different thing um, because now all of a sudden you've got a lot less of a scope, got a lot more kind of legitimacy. It, it, the statutory ability to do it is a little different. So that might be the way it goes. But I think if we're going to see widespread employee vaccination mandates, it's going to be on a voluntary basis, uh, not because it's mandated. Uh, yeah. So let me let me let me let me let me yep. jump on that and pivot over to Franklin real quick. You know, and, and Pete, if you want to, you know, jump in as well. So you're you know, Franklin, you're the CEO of Brand X. You don't have to do this. You know, it's unlikely to Pete's point. You know, if it gets flipped back to the court, that it's you know, if you're a betting person, you're going to say that they're going to rule it unconstitutional. Do you issue this or do you put your own unilateral policy in place? What do you do if you're the CEO of Big Brand X? Yeah, well, and uh, it's an emergency temporary standard. So it has a six month light time life, which is going to expire before anything can be done anyway. So it's going to go away. You know, if you're a national brand, you're still going to have to abide by this because I would guess at least a third of the states are going to enact, which have greater population density and greater urban centers. And so a disproportionate number, a higher number, that third of states is probably half the workforce in the country. And so you're going to have to comply in that third of states with, you know, 42% of America's workforce. To me, if you're a national brand, I don't know why you just wouldn't implement it, you know, nationally rather than try to try to figure that out. But brands will have to make those decisions, you know, the availability of tests and some other constraints may push them into a space where they have kind of a graduated or bifurcated approach. Uh, but generally speaking, I, you know, I, I think national brands are going to have to implement what's close to a national standard regardless, because states and municipalities are going to continue to charge in the space. And by the way, that's going to be terrible <laughs> to deal with a hodgepodge of 15 or 20 different state mandates in this space is going to be terrible rather than just one big federal standard, which, you know, going back to when we initially had this conversation, this is why a bunch of companies were probably, you know, quietly like applauding that there would be one federal standard that would um, make this a heck of a lot easier to comply with nationally. So I think that's, I think that's the environment. I mean, look, most companies, I, I would say 80%, maybe 90% of national brands have been preparing to comply with the ETS. And so they've already got tracked down the vaccination status of their employees. They have already, you know, they were preparing for the, the deadline to comply. So they're already poised in position to, to go forward. I do think there is, I'm going to seemingly contradict myself a little bit here, but I, I do think there are other considerations in terms of labor access, getting people through the doors and retaining workers that may, you know, they may say, hey, we don't have to comply in Alabama and Florida. We can't get any workers through the doors. Let's not let's not do this because we need every available worker. Um, so I, I do think there's some other considerations like that that may cause brands to take a little, you know, did a different approach in different in different states. It seems like they'd be they'd be entering in a lot of brands 
you, you would have a jihad among franchisees if you tried to enact that. I mean, I think a lot of brands are getting some vigorous and vocal, you know, opposition from their franchisee base about trying to do that. It's a, I mean, it's, it's a no win situation for, I think, corporate leadership and, and franchise organizations. 100%. Let me throw one other stakeholder group in there that's particularly relevant to Starbucks right now. Union organizers, right? They're going to use this no matter what your decision, one way or the other, on this mask and the, and, and the other related pandemic issues, organizers are going to use that against you in your storefront. And that doesn't mean a lot for some companies that don't have active organizing. But if you're Starbucks or, you know, a company that does, and then that means a lot, how you define your corporate policy and then articulate it within your system um, all the way down to the frontline worker. So, yeah, I mean, this standard going away creates a gigantic problem for a lot of companies. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. And the business about uh, you know, what's going to happen at the grassroots level in terms of uh, unions coming in. I mean, imagine you're an operator and the union plants a story in the local paper that you refuse to vaccinate your employees. That cannot be well perceived outside of Florida um, as a good thing by the cust- by your customer base. And, and so the unions have quite a lever here to, to really prod people. Um, and I think they're realizing it. I think that, you know, slowly but surely they're awakening to that possibility. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a mess for sure. But if I, if, if Romeo's Burgers uh, were extended to 2,000 units, we, we'd have an employee vaccination mandate in place right now because uh, I agree with you. Franklin, it's a matter of you got to do something and at least you can avoid the hodgepodge of local regulations if they're not going to be there. So, Well, never a dull moment. And, I, you know, I, I, I think, Pete, you talked about Illinois and state level activity. I think there's some potential for states to, to think twice now after, after the, the ruling this week. I think Illinois, and you mentioned it, you know, I've, I've looked at Illinois as well, and I think they may be backpedaling and, and basically potentially withdrawing their own mandate uh, the last 24 hours. So just FYI, it's a, it's a moving target, you know, at every level of government. And uh, I don't envy the position of, of large employers in this. So uh, anyway, something you want to add, Pete? Uh, no, I just think it's going to be an interesting couple months here uh, for a lot of things. And, you know, the, the other th- wild card is what happens with Omicron infections, you know, uh, in Europe, they're starting to say, okay, this is a, what they've uh, dubbed the ice pick surge because it's gone up so quickly, so sharply and come down just as quickly. If that should happen in the U.S., then all of a sudden it takes a little pressure off. But we've got other variants already emerging in uh, France and Cyprus. And so uh, that's, that could largely drive this as well. So, um, But I think it is going to be a really wild and woolly couple months coming up for sure. Well, Pete, I know if uh, if anyone's going to cover the wild and wooly couple months, it will be Peter Romeo. Pete, thanks for taking the time uh, to join us on Working Lunch this morning. Big week, obviously, with the Supreme Court mandate, what's going on with Starbucks. It starts a state legislature. So for you, me, uh, our team, a lot of teams out there, you know, January is go time on public policy issues at the at, uh, federal, state and local level. And we appreciate you sharing your insight and expertise with us. Uh, my pleasure, uh, Joe. But uh, where where does the free lunch come in? Um, I would call your editors at Restaurant Business and return a voucher. I'm sure you know your your leadership would love to buy you a a free lunch. But any next time we're together, lunch is on me, my friend. All right, thank you guys. Have a good day. All right, Pete. Take care, pal. Bye bye. 
So Franklin, as usual, Pete on top of his game. What were your kind of thoughts on on what he had to say? Well, look, Mr. Remy is a smart guy, and uh, he's also in communication with industry leaders all the time, every day. So uh, he's very well informed. I thought it was a good combo. It's good context. There's one thing I'd like to pull out of that conversation, though, that he hit on, which is, you know, he, he basically said after the initial kind of headlines around Starbucks, a lot of people have kind of tuned out and aren't really following the story anymore, which is interesting because I think almost the inverse is happening outside the restaurant industry where it, it yes, it got a burst of national press. But I, I do think that outside the industry, more and more people are starting to kind of follow this story and there will be other bursts of national headlines. And uh, that's just kind of an interesting dynamic that's in play, that the Starbucks story and what's going on there continues to gather momentum kind of outside the industry or maybe even with our employees, whereas it's losing momentum with probably the executives within the industry right now. That is a dynamic that is going to come to a, a head at some point. Yeah, that's, that's, you know, disappointing. It's not surprising, but uh, disappointing, obviously, in, you know, we talked about it. They've got unbelievable distractions right now they've never had before. They've never had the labor challenge they've had. They've never had a supply chain challenge they've had. They've never had the health and safety challenge they've had. And then you layer on top this union thing. Uh, it's just it's just falling to the wayside. And, and I think they'll look back and rue that at some point in the future. But it's good to have Pete on standby, digging, 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 talking to execs, getting the real story. And we appreciate his willingness to, to pop in and chat with us this morning. It's time for the legislative scorecard. We go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And as we have for the last two plus years, Frank, let's start with COVID. Obviously, we talked at length with Pete about this. Any other aspects of the Supreme Court's action this week you want to opine on? I mean, we dug into it a little bit. We talked there will be some states that that fill the void here. Um, I think it's worth stating that like the politics have changed in this and the context has changed in this. You know, Omicron is not as deadly. That's what the research is kind of telling us, particularly if you're vaccinated. And so, you know, the approach is a little bit different, even from dim elected officials. You, you hear a lot more. If you're vaccinated, it's, uh, you, you know, on par with the flu, essentially. So it, you're hearing more kind of public health officials and, and elected officials you, you know, the Ron DeSantis, the Republicans, uh, uh, they're leading the charge in this to DeSantis of the world will say, see, we were right all along. You see more people moving towards a more, well, we've got to learn to live with this type of stance and posture. And it's worth noting that kind of the context and the backdrop has changed over the past two years. But I do think that we as a whole are moving more in that direction. I think the Biden mandate um, going away you know, and assuming that some other variant doesn't come back, like that's more deadly than Delta, right? I, I think we'll continue to kind of drift, which is not, <laughs> which could easily happen, by the way, but it, it will continue to drift in that direction. So, you know, the last thing I would say is it is a defeat uh, for the Biden administration and one of a few that they have suffered in the past month. The voting rights is a huge defeat. For the Biden administration, they put the president out there this week, own that, and then build back better, another defeat. So 
you know, the president's approval numbers are in the can right now. And that that buoys Republicans prospects. And I think you got to wrap kind of the vaccine mandate and, and the overall environment around COVID into some of that. So going in a couple different directions there, Joe, but that's just some uh, f- some freestyling thoughts on the vaccine mandate. It has a bunch of implications beyond just our sort of narrow operational implications. Um, and it will continue to have uh, kind of a ripple effect for a while. Franklin, switching to uh, paid leave, you know, obviously the, the conversations continue in Congress, but action is happening in the private sector and uh, a couple of companies followed Walmart into the breach and adjusted their COVID-related paid leave standards. At least Amazon, CVS, and Walgreens did. And I suspect there's a whole bunch more that's not being widely reported. So um, we, we predicted it last week and we're seeing it this week and we'll see it next week and we'll see it the next week where companies are following that kind of Walmart lead and tweaking their their COVID-19 leave policies according to the CDC's new recommendations and new guidance. So uh, switching out to the states on paid leave, a little bit of action in California and Maryland. What's going on? Yeah, so headlines this week that California has the type of budget surplus that politicians dream about. And so Gavin Newsom has what every politician has ever wanted, which is to deliver on big ticket items that nobody ever has the budget for. And uh, one little piece of that, little tiny piece of that, is a new new legislation to revive the supplemental paid sick leave policies. And we were probably going to see a lot more out of California uh, this coming year as Gavin Newsom faces basically no opposition for re-election after having survived the recall and probably has big presidential ambitions. So expect to see a lot of uh, stuff like this in California this year. And crab cakes, football, and now potentially family and medical leave program in Maryland. Yeah. And look, we've done this a couple of times, right? So, you know, the dynamic there is we have a fairly moderate Republican governor that's willing to work across the aisle. And so, you know, you see some some things like this kind of getting traction and in, in when they wouldn't maybe elsewhere. Legislation to create a family paid leave programs introduced, 12 weeks of paid leave, funded through a state-administered insurance pool. If it passes, Maryland would join just a handful of states that are doing this. Don't, don't count this out. Paid family leave is popular, right? And Governor Hogan is positioning himself for a potential presidential run. And these are the types of issues that he wants to burnish his credentials as kind of a moderate that can work across the aisle on, on issues that have broad support with the American public. Yeah, it's a confluence of, you know, a popular issue with a very popular governor. He can run tomorrow for a third term and easily win. I'm, I'm actually kind of surprised at the politics of Maryland. They already don't have this on the books. There are only eight other states that do, eight states in, the D, in D.C. that do. You know, you would just instinctively would have thought Maryland would have already had that on the books. But it will be, you know, on this podcast, we don't tend to spend too much time on bill introductions when they're on major business model issues in populous states with a good chance of passage, it's, it's worth noting. And so that's why we kind of put that in the mix this week. Franklin, meet the new boss. Same as the old boss, David Weil, slipped by one vote through confirmation process of the Senate Help Committee and is on his way to the Senate floor. What do you think? I think it's going to be a spicy debate on the Senate floor. Yeah, no, after, after a couple failed attempts to get him through the committee, they did. I mean, vocal opposition. I'd, I'm sure there have been in other agencies that we watch less closely 
brutal nomination battles for these kind of undersecretary positions, but you don't see them often. That's for certain. It has been a throwdown. So he's, he's headed to the Senate floor. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah. You know, it's a, you know, for, for the employer community and the entry level employer community, the wage and hour division, obviously a big deal. It's probably an agency that 99% of Americans have never heard of. And the, to your point, you threw kind of words out of my mouth. This is a, a drawn out, confirmation battle that you see with ambassadorships and secretaries of different cabinet departments and judges. You don't usually see it on the wage and hour division that most people couldn't even find in the federal you know, directory. But uh, it's pretty, uh, you know, long experience uh, with David Wilde during his time in the Obama administration. We've talked about it many times. I think the interesting thing is, you know, how vocal the business community got between you know his initial confirmation process hearing in August and the six months in between, IFA, NRA, every every other A, very involved and vocal in trying to, to, to derail that nomination. So it, it was uh, you know contentious to say the least. That's for sure. But uh, you know, and, and it's not a given on the Senate floor. Uh, usually, when you get through committee, it's 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 kind of perfunctory. Uh, you know, the Democrats have the the one vote majority, but you never know with Manchin and Cinema these days where where they're going to be. Franklin, um, labor activism, Amazon. We're gonna have a we're gonna have a, a, another run through of that election, correct? Man, I feel like the union is a dog that caught the car on this. They got so spanked and destroyed. If I'm the union, I'm like, really, I have to go through that again. Like, I have to. I feel like they they filed all these complaints because you know they kind of have to. You know, having put so much energy and effort into it, and they won, and it's like, oh no. You know, now we've got to spend all this time, energy and resource to probably get defeated again. I mean, the the margins were so out of whack is is why I say that. But, yep, they're going to they're going to rerun the, the Bessemer, Alabama location election. Ballots will be mailed out in February 4th. Counting begins in March 28th. And we'll see what happens there. If they win, it'll be huge. But they lost in such a lopsided way before. I can't imagine them winning. Now, if they did win, then it would actually give a lot of credibility to the claim that the employer and these employer tactics are unfair. I just can't imagine they're going to be able to make up that gap. I mean, they lost like three to one. I mean, it was like 70, 75% margin of victory. So it's just Kind of interesting to see what's happened there. Obviously, we talked at length about Starbucks at the top of the show, but one particular issue, Franklin, uh, again, under the heading of don't usually do bill introductions, but big states on big issues tend to pay a little more attention. New York, the gov in her state of the state address kind of rolled out uh, her intentions to get one of these extended producer responsibility bills a la Oregon and Maine. What do you think? I think it's going to truck down the down the tracks and we better get in there and start lobbying very quickly. That's that's what I think. So, you know, look, she's specifically saying that she wants to address the increasing amounts of recycled products that are ending up in the landfills. That's the impetus for her to to tackle this. And it is the solid waste industry is accounting for 12 percent of New York's greenhouse gas emissions. So this is being put in the in the larger context of addressing kind of climate change. And I can guarantee you that is going to be part of her election campaign when she tries to win this office in her own right rather than inheriting it. So um, you can expect that some version of this is is probably going to pass. And we've got to get in there and, and lobby up if we want to shape it 
look, these things are popping out of the process. We've got one in Maryland too that I, I think the employer community is more friendly towards. We have got to start finding some some model language. If we don't, let me just say this: models are getting ready to emerge, whether they're ours or someone else's. So uh, we got to get in there and, and be a part of these combos. And I think it's an issue that lends itself to to our participation in the sense that you know. The, the, Outside the, the the financing of these, there's a lot of moving parts logistics on the ground, right? And retailers and restaurant people are the ones on the ground. They're the ones in the trenches. So if it's going, if you're a governor or a mayor and you want it to execute, you know, if you want a program like this to be executed smoothly, you're going to need extensive participation from those people on the ground in the trenches. And, you know, it isn't, my sense is, that even the strongest proponents of these kinds of bills know that they that predicated their, I mean, the whole, whole onus of the bill is the getting the business community, you know, skin in the game on this. And, you know, so my point being probably more open to legitimate feedback and help on these issues to get it right than on a lot of other our business model issues. And again, we are missing an opportunity here. State after state gets into this and it's being met with a lot of silence and, you know, Oh, exempt us. Well, even if we do get exempted, let's, you know, hypothetically, we won't for long, you know, so we need to get in there and be adults and try to shape this thing as best as possible and uh, acknowledge the reality where this issue is going. But um, so New York State one to track. You mentioned Maryland. There will be others in this burgeoning sustainability related type issue set going forward in 2022. Yep. The other political dynamic in New York worth mentioning, tipped wage. So, you know, if we stay silent and, and sit back and don't go talk to the governor and her staff about this issue in a productive way, then we're only going to be showing up to complain about tipped wage. And that's that's a bad dynamic as well, which leads me to my closing, Joe. Election year legislative sessions, folks. We've got a lot of election year concerns and considerations across the board. We have about a third of the states kicking off their legislative sessions this week and the accompanying state of the state addresses chock full of red meat. We are officially in the silly season now, Joe, and uh, it's just going to get sillier as the time goes on. And you see all that packed through all these kind of top items blips we're talking about. You know, it's gearing up for an election year legislative session run here. Couldn't agree more. It's it's. Uh... You know, all eyes, uh, as Joe Renzel would always say, all eyes are on November. uh, And unfortunately, it will infect all aspects of policymaking over the next nine to 10 months. All right. Well, that's the scorecard for this week. And uh, we'll have another one for you next week as well. Well, as we leave this week, Franklin, you, you talk a lot about atmospherics and the environment, what's going on out there. And a little article this week caught your eye. That, um, you know, we talk about, you know, January 1, a lot of states and localities, that's a trigger date for, you know, increase in the minimum wage, either based on a previous law passed about initiative or a cost of living adjustment. But this year is a new record. 81 states and cities will be raising their minimum wages in 2022, over half of them to above 15 bucks an hour. It's pretty amazing to sit back and think about that. Over 80 states and cities raising it. And over half of those above 15 bucks an hour. Again, marketplace is dominating a lot of this, but you know, states and localities keep going. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's crazy. 
crazy thinking like when the fight for 15 campaign started some years ago and and where we are now as as we said earlier in, in a different context i think in the context of vaccine mandates and i'm looking at the map right now in this article these are a lot of the population centers in the country too so you know it's 80 whatever jurisdictions but it's a bigger share of the of the population per yeah, capita. And it, it ain't where the cows are, where the people are. It ain't where the cows are, exactly. it's where the people are. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So now it's astounding, to be honest with you. Kind of where we are and in, in, in the state of play. And yeah, that's it. That's all I got. North of 15, you go you go almost fifty jurisdictions going north of fifteen when no one could believe 15 bucks five years ago. And now we've got California looking at eighteen dollar ballot initiative. Now we've got, you know, people going higher and higher. So it's it's, uh, you know, again, we had this conversation in around January 1 every year, but this year it took on new meeting, uh, just the, the, the sheer size, scope, and levels of those increases. So never a dull moment to operate a sustainable restaurant or retail operation in this day and age. So on that happy note, we will leave you until next week. And until then, stay safe and stay informed, and we'll talk to you then. 